Well, Isaiah is a big book, and um, it's not easy to go through it a little sections at a time, and because we lose the we lose the bigger picture. So, just for a moment, let me kind of explain Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one to thirty nine focus on the faithful the faithless city. Uh, Jerusalem was spared from the kingdom of Assyria, only to be told at the end of chapter 39 that the future of the people would be the captivity in Babylon. The question then is this, and this is really the question of the book, how will the faithless city become the faithful city? And when you think of city, don't think of the, like this. Think of people, okay? Uh, when he talks about Jerusalem, he talks about the city, he's talking about the people there. They were faithless people. Well, how are they going to become faithful? Um, how will the rebellious people of God become the holy people of God? Uh, the captivity in Babylon would never make them righteous. They would still be sinners separated from God because they, like all people everywhere, have a problem. As one writer put it, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And we see that in Scripture. We remember the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Before the flood came, God said that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. After the flood, God says the same thing about mankind, even though it's Noah and his family that's there. He says the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And um, we pick that up again in Romans, where uh, those who, who, who knew God stopped uh, giving him glory. They exchanged the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. They began worshiping the creation. Um, and so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. proper. And to sum it all up, God says a lot of things that people do that are unrighteous, wicked deeds, greed, evil, things like that, slander, insolence, arrogance, all of those things. But basically, people are haters of God. People outside of Christ are haters of God. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are, by nature, all of us, children of wrath. That's what we are. Well, how can God remedy this problem? How might the human heart be changed? Well, Isaiah 40 through 55 directs our attention to the answer. God will change the heart because only God can change the heart. Now, these chapters, chapter 40 through 52, 12, lead us to a focal point, which is Isaiah 52, 12 through 53, 13, which is the suffering servant that we looked at for a couple weeks. That's kind of the focal point, but it's like a crescendo. It's going up. God is going to solve the problem. How is he going to do that? Well, that's answered somewhat in Isaiah 54 and 55. And everything that flows out of Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, about the suffering servant, what the suffering servant accomplishes for his people, and that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, what he accomplishes for them, um, is... Um, um, everything that Isaiah says in 54 and 55 that we read this morning flows out of that chapter that directs us to Christ. And so this morning I want to direct your attention to two commands, two conclusions, and one invitation. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for um, your word. And uh, Isaiah's like, for me, it's a big book. And um, 
It's not an easy book to work through. It's got a lot of images um, that we kind of struggle with sometimes. Um, it's the same in the book of Revelation. We see all these images and, and uh, we scratch our heads sometimes. But through your word, you reveal yourself to us. And these images are meant to draw our attention to details about you and about your honor and your glory and about how you're going to glorify your people. And so, our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding this morning as we think about these two chapters uh, in Isaiah. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, there's two commands. First, we see, sing, O barren one, who did not bear uh, and break forth. Um, so we have the first command uh, is, to, is to sing. The second command is to fear not. Um, and we want to look at those two commands. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married. Well, what is he talking about? Um, the people of Israel, because they had been sent into captivity, were considered a barren like a barren woman, right? And um, they had been forsaken by the Lord. That's how they thought. And even God says, I did it for a while. We're going to look at that in a minute. I was angry with you for a while. And uh, you were in a position where you were like desolate. What's your future? You have no children. That's what our children are. They're our future. That's what's horrible about abortion is that we're killing the next generation of Americans. And we're killing the next generation of, of people around the world. Uh, why are we doing that? You know, it, it's, we should be fearful of that, but we're not. Uh, well, that's what happened to Israel. That where? What about their children? What, what's happening to them? We're in we're in captivity. Um, our children, some of them, been killed. Uh, some of them are dying for other reasons. Um, and God says, "Well, I want you now. I want you to sing. I want you to sing, O barren one, for the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married." It's a promise that Israel is going to be restored. But not it isn't just a reference to Israel, and we'll see that in a moment. Um, but it is a promise to them that they do have a future. That's what I think God is saying. You do have a future. And so he tells them on the basis of that, enlarge the place of your tent. In other words, extend your, extend your uh, habitation. Um, stretch it out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Uh, strengthen your stakes. Uh, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. That means to the north and to the south. That's how that's translated in other places. You're going to spread out. God wants him to be more than just this one little place on the map of the world, you know. And Israel is. It's just a spot on the map compared to everything else. And, oh, well, God wants him to be more than that. And he says, uh, and your offspring, they're going to possess the nations. What's that? Possess the Gentiles. And they will, they will, they will people the desolate cities. In other words, God wants them to understand that he is going to cause them to grow. He's going to, he's going to restore them and they're going to extend, they're going to extend what they are to the entire world. Well, how does that really happen? Well, it's happening right now because of Christ. Christ is the one that's extending extending the people of God all around the world. And they're growing all over. In, in the Middle East, uh, many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. They say thousands of them are, are coming to faith in Christ in, in, in Muslim countries. Uh, well, what is that? That's God fulfilling this word to him. That's why Paul writes of this, he quotes this very verse, verse in Galatians. 
He says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in la- not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He's talking to the church. God is going to fulfill his word. And so therefore, we should sing. We do. Uh, we should sing like Israel's commanded to sing. Because God will keep his promises, and that's going to become evident as we go through here. The second imperative is to fear not. Um, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. Look at that. How many times you got to say this? Uh, you will forget the shame of your youth and reproach of your widowhood. You will remember it no more. God's going to remove all the negative, right? Right now we do face negative things. Um, but we got to remember who our God is, and that's what Israel's called to do, to remember who their God is. Don't be afraid. Why? Because, look at there's six titles there about God. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Because I am your maker. What is that, I am your maker? He created. He created us. He made his people. He said, he, he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He, he brought Israel into, uh, into Egypt. He took them out of Egypt and he's not going to forsake them now. He's not just like he's not going to forsake us. He's our maker, but not only is he that, he's our husband. Think of the intimacy that's described there. That's the closest relationship that humanity has is of how it's a husband and wife. Now I know we love our children and all of that, but the closest intimacy we have is with our husbands and wives. And so God is saying, that's what I am to you. God is close to us as um, as a person. But he's also, we read, the Lord of hosts. What is the Lord of hosts? It's the, the Lord of, of the heavenly armies. The Lord Sabaoth. We read it, we sing it in song. He's, he's the Lord of the, of the armies of heaven. And so he's, he's in control of everything. He can defend everything. He can, he can, he can, um, right every wrong, so to speak. But he's also then called the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. What does, is, what does that mean? Well, God is holy. And we got to remember that he's holy in the sense that he is separate from us. He's separate from sin, yes. He's separate from, he's separate from us. He's different from us. He's not like us. We are created in his image. He's not created in ours. And so in this verse, we have this kind of, um, uh, echo of the idea of God being transcendent. That is other than us. We can't feel him or touch him because he's not like the creation, right? Um, but he's close to us. That means he's imminent to us. That he's close to us as a husband is to a wife. And so you have both the transcendence of God. He's totally other than us, different from us. But he's also close to us. He's imminent. Christianity is the only religion that actually teaches that God is both transcendent and imminent. The other religions go either one way or the other. Islam, God is totally transcendent. He's totally other. He's out there. In Buddhism and Hinduism, God is totally imminent. He's part of the creation, or he's, or, yeah, he's part of the creation. Um, uh, even you are, are God in some sense. And so, but Christianity holds those two ideas in tension. 
Um, and they are intention. It is kind of a mystery. Um, but the reality is, uh, we should see that in the world around us. We should under, we should try to understand that. But God is both holy and he's near to us. And then we notice that he's our redeemer. What is a redeemer? What does a redeemer do? What does a redeemer mean? Buy back. He's, he's, he's our redeemer. He's the one who purchased us back from where? He brought us back from sin. In Isaiah, he's the redeemer because he brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He's also the redeemer because he's going to bring them out of the land of the Babylonians. But he's our redeemer in the sense that he brings us out of the bondage of sin. And that's basically really what God is talking about is he says that he's their redeemer. He's going to remove them. He's going to Save them from their sins. And then we have this summary statement in verse six, in uh, the number, the sixth statement. He is the God of the whole earth. That's what he's called. So he's over all, all things. Um, he's our mighty God. And God has called us like a wife. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. That's how he's called us. I want you to see this. God did judge Israel. He sent them into captivity in Babylon. And he says, "Uh, before a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. Here's the parallel. In overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, just get the picture. God was angry with Israel, so angry he sent them into captivity. And yet, he loves them, and he's not going to leave them there. His his compassion is actually greater than his anger. I want you to think about something when you think about God being angry. I got this from John Oswald. I thought it was an an interesting way to look at it. Um, We don't often associate anger and love. Right? But you see, if we really love someone, we will be angry when they do things that are wrong. Not because we want to hurt them, but we want to correct them. And it it should anger us when our, it should anger us when we sin. It should anger us when our children sin. But just because we're angry doesn't mean we don't love them. In fact, that anger is an expression of our love. If you, if you didn't love your child, or if you didn't love the person you're angry with, why would you be angry? Right? Am I angry that the guy on the street punched somebody in the nose over there? Not really. He didn't hit me. It's, it's no skin off my nose. All right? I, I don't have any, I mean, I'm supposed to have love for him, so I should be angry. But the point is, I'm angry, though, if someone hurts my son. I'm angry if my son hurts somebody else. I'm angry if my daughters don't do this or that, don't follow the word of God. Um, Why am I angry? I'm I'm angry with them because I love them. Not because I hate them. And that's what God is saying. I've been angry with you. For a moment, I deserted you. And I I said for a moment, I, I... I uh, turned my face from you, but with everlasting compassion, I'm going to restore you. You see, God is faithful, and so he makes reference to 
he makes reference to the, the covenant. Uh, he makes reference to the the covenant he made with Noah. Remember when Noah flooded, when the Noah's ark, the world flooded, and God put a rainbow in the sky, and he made a covenant, and he said he was never going to destroy all the earth again. And um, so he makes reverence to that covenant because that he that never happened again. The world has never been flooded like that before, uh, never since again. And uh, and so, but then he makes a statement. He says. Um, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. What is a covenant of peace? We could call that a berit, uh, berit shalom. Covenant of peace, shalom. What is peace? Well, it's not just, oh, I feel so good about life. I, you know, I'm just so, I'm relaxed. I feel peace. No, that's really not it. There's a couple places I'll just refer you to, and you can look them up later. You remember Phineas, the son of Eleazar? Israel was uh, was uh, sinning with the nations around him, and, and Eleazar, uh, I mean Phineas, uh, chased the, the the priest. He chased a, a man who was having adultery with a woman, and uh, he chased them into the tent. And he ran him through with a spear. Both both of them ran him through. And uh, when God talked about Phineas, he said, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. But then he goes on and says kind of what that is. And that shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And I will make a covenant of peace with them uh, and harmful beasts from the land. Um, he will eliminate them. Uh, so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, and I will make them uh, in the in the places uh, uh, the, uh, around his hill of blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season, and their showers of blessing, and the tree will bear fruit, and on and on. What's it describing? It's not just describing a peaceful feeling. It's describing a peaceful situation. Shalom is not just me being at peace. Shalom is me being, uh, with everything being in proper balance around me. And me being in a safe position, right? It's it's more than just uh, peace between me and God. That's true that it's that, but it's more than that. It it means that we're going to be at peace with with all with everything around us. Everything around us is going to be proper the way that it should be. And uh, we also read in Ezekiel, uh, um, God says that He will establish for them uh, the planting place. Uh, and they will know that I'm the Lord their God, and he's going to make a covenant of peace with them. Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, David is going to reign over them, and they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which their fathers lived. And they will live on it, and their sons, and their sons' sons forever. Uh, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will also be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the very essence of a covenant. Well, they're at peace with God, they're at peace with themselves, they're at peace with the world. Everything is the way that it should be. That's God's promise in a covenant of peace. And guess what? We're the inheritors of that. Now, we don't see it, right? You know, we have enemies around us and all of that. But God wants us to take our attention off of the right now and to focus it on the future. You see, you live, remember I told you this, and I'm going to always tell you, you live into the future. The past is, the present's already gone. 
as soon as I said it, it was gone. So we live into the future. Well, what does God want us to see in the future? How many, how much money we're going to have? Um, what kind of job we're going to have? Where I'm going to live? No. I'm not saying those things aren't important. What I'm saying is that's not what God wants us to focus on. He wants us to focus on the fact that our future is, uh, is in his hands. Um, and so that's why Paul, when he, or the writer of Hebrews, when he writes these words as benediction to his book. Now the God of peace who brought up the, who brought up the, the dead, uh, who brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. What is that eternal covenant? Well, I believe it's a covenant of peace. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what God wants us to focus on. Well, that then brings us, we have two commands, and then we come to two uh, conclusions. And first we notice there, this conclusion to Jerusalem. And God will, uh, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in uh, antimony. I thought that was... I thought that was another word and got confused. Antimony. What is antimony? Well, it's a shiny blue-white crystal. That's what it is. I will set your stones in that. And I will lay your foundations with sapphires. Uh, that's like r- ruby, only it's blue in color. And, and I will make your pinnacles of agate. What's agate? Well, agate is a form of quartz. It's, it's used as a gemstone. I will make your gates of carbuncles. I always thought carbuncles were things that stuck to fish and stuff like that. But actually, it's not. It's a, it's a red gemstone. You know those... I call them carbuncles. They stick to bolts and all that. Um, that's not what God means. God means a red gemstone. <laughs> so, and uh, all your wall will be precious stones. That is, uh, precious is something that's pleasing to look at. It's, it's stones that give you pleasure when you look at them. I get pleasure when I look at diamonds. I know I, you know, I, I love to look at diamonds. They're beautiful. And, um, but yeah, that's what God's going to do. Um, and doesn't that sound strikingly similar to what we read in Revelation 21? The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. There was jasper and sapphire and chalcedony, whatever that is, and emerald. I know what emerald is. Uh, sardonyx, uh, sardis, uh, chrysolite, beryl, topaz. I can see all these beautiful stones. And this, this, this city of God is really the people of God, right? We are the temple of the living God. Uh, we're the ones who are being built into this. That's why Revelation says that John saw the, the bride coming down out of heaven. And how does he describe her? As the new city, the city with all this beautiful, beautiful stones and everything and its foundation and its walls. It's like, wow. Um, God's going to glorify us. Do we get that? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we've come. That's where we stand before now. We have, it's like the writer, um, in Hebrews, the writer says, We have this great cloud of witnesses around us. And he was referring back to Hebrews 11, where he talks about all the people that lived by faith. Abraham, Abel, Sarah, Moses, on and on and on. And they're like this great cloud of witnesses, like when you go to a football game, right? 
or a basketball game. Here we go. Uh, we didn't we didn't beat it. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I can pick up the pace a little. Uh, so, um, uh, um, you know, you go to you go to a football game and you got a you got a crowd of people standing, you know, sitting there cheering all the guys on. It's kind of that picture. We're running this race that's set before us, and 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 there's all these witnesses around us, and they're cheering us on, saying, "Go, go, go! Don't give up." Well, that's the city that we're in. The city that Isaiah is just talking about. The city that uh, that that John is talking about in Revelation. There will be a day when when all of that will be fulfilled. Those are all images. Okay, so you can't. I don't believe you can take them literally. Like. I mean, the city of Jerusalem, when it comes down out of heaven, is so large, I think it takes up half of Europe. I mean, so it's a huge, huge city. So it's taking up all that space. So um, as we think about that, uh, <laughs> uh, as we think about that, that's, that's what's going to happen. All those images are going to be fulfilled when God brings uh, in the eternal kingdom. Um, he says, there's also something for your children. All your children shall be taught of the Lord and uh, shall be um, there shall be and great shall be the peace for your children. Your children are going to enjoy what you have enjoyed. And that's all focusing on the covenant that we have in Christ. In Jeremiah 31, we hear about the new covenant. Um, and the Lord says, I will put my law within them and I will write in their hearts and they, I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord and I will forgive all their iniquity. Well, that brings us into the last point, which is the one invitation. Oh boy. One invitation. God invites us. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Again, you see that come up in Revelation 21 that we read. 21.6, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Revelation 21.17, and let the one who is thirsty come, that the one who wishes to take water, the water of life without cost, let him come. You see, God has made a covenant, and he makes reference to the covenant that he made with David, because the covenant he made with David is an everlasting covenant, and it's fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And so he he says, um, he says, listen, diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you, I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, um, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because the Lord your God uh, and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Notice that he's going to glorify us. So therefore, 
God offers this invitation. Come to me. And he says, again, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God invites you to come. He invites you to come, and he says, the way that it's stated, it implies, you, you come to me now, you seek me now, while I can be found. There's an implication that there may be a time when he can't be found. And so, it's proper for us to come to him now, because he can be found as his word is proclaimed. Some people think, well, I've done a lot of really good things. Uh you know, and they would they would think that well, all the good things I've done. You see, I've done I've done this many good things and this many bad things, and they balance out, and so God's going to accept me. So let's just think for a moment. This is kind of a cheesy illustration. I've used it before, but I don't mind using it again. Um, let's say that you robbed a bank, and uh, you went to the judge and you said, you know, uh, Your Honor, I, I, I'm a I know I robbed the bank, okay, but you know I'm a good I'm a good son. I take care of my mother, you know. I I don't kick my dog. You know, I, I'm I'm a nice person, you know. And and I could just hear the judge say, um, "Well, let's just forget it. You've been a good person. Let's just forget it. It all balances out, right? You've done some bad things. You've done some good things. Oh, that's a good balance. I'll let you go on the bank robbery. No, the judge won't do that." He might say something like, well, you have done many good things. Um, and they are good. However, you robbed the bank. And it's for the bank robbery that you're going to go to prison. Right? He's not going to just let you off the hook because you were a nice person. Uh, imagine something else. Your mother gives you everything you need and more. She works hard to keep you in clothes and feed you. She saves you her pennies so that you can go to college. Then after you graduate from college, you never see or talk to her again. You never have anything to do with her again. Uh, do you think she would be hurt? Yes. Do you think that she might be angry? Now, I want you to think of that, and I want you to multiply that by infinity, because that's the way we've treated God. We treat him like he doesn't even exist. He's given us and continues to give us everything we need, and yet we act as though he does not exist. Romans 1 points that out. Paul describes people outside of Christ. He says they are ultimately God-haters. How can God forgive people who hate him? How can he forgive his enemies? How can be he can, you see, because of Jesus. He gave his son that we might live. Well, you know, you say, wait a minute now, Christ died so that I so that I who hated God could live? And the answer is yes. And you say, Well, how can God do that? Well, Isaiah tells us. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is God. 
And as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but the, the water of the earth, making it sprout forth food and giving seed and to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish all which I purpose it to do, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God sends forth his word about our Lord Jesus Christ, which declares that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that the gospel is foolishness to unbelievers, that it's not wisdom at all to other people, but for those who are being saved, this is the wisdom of God and the power of God, and it will succeed. The preaching of the gospel will succeed. It will go out. And the Lord's name will be great. And it's interesting at the end that God says um, it depicts creation as a mother about to deliver a child in Romans 9. Now what happens to delivery after 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 a baby is born? What happens after that? We're supposed to forget. Yeah, but it's joy, isn't it? A woman that gives birth to a child is painful. I mean, I've been there, so not that I've been, I've been there with my wife, <laughs> and um, and 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 it is, it hurts, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I can't stand it, and um, but um. Think of that. When it's all over, oh, look how beautiful. And there's just joy. There's happiness. Um, the whole the, the whole creation is going to give praise and glory to God. You see that? Paul says in Romans that um, creation is going to respond to the grace of God. Isaiah says, instead of the thorn, there shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. All creation is going to respond to God's grace. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. For the anxious longing of what? Of us? No, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility and not on its own, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is going to be set free from the bondage that sin brought into the world. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. But what is it that shall make the name of the Lord? What will be the everlasting sign that shall never be cut off? Well, it's you and me and all of those in Christ Jesus. It's the whole creation. It's the redemption of God's people and of God's creation. Now think about this. God stakes his reputation on it. He stakes his reputation on the redeeming work that will that comes through Christ to bring glory to himself. And we will be the evidence. We will be the evidence. And so we finish through Isaiah 55. We looked at two commands, um, two conclusions, and one invitation. And the invitation is always there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because he won't always be found. So seek him now. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We pray now that you would um, grant us wisdom and insight as we go through the day. Help us to remember your love for us. And uh, Father, we do pray that you would um, 
help us to work through things uh, here uh, as we attempt to move ahead. And uh, we commit our lives to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.